Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, David Park. My first guest is Janet Bishop, the curator of David Park, A Retrospective. It's on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through September 22nd. The show is the first museum exhibition in over 30 years to examine Park's career. Park was the originator of what has become known as the Bay Area Figurative School, a key response to abstract expressionism that helped make San Francisco one of America's post-war art-making capitals. The show includes over 120 paintings and works on paper. From Fort Worth, it will travel to the Kalamazoo Institute of Arts and to Bishop's home institution, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. On the second segment, Nature's Nation, now at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. But first, David Park, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Experience Sheila Hicks Sees Weave Space on view at the Nasher Sculpture Center through August 18th. This site-specific fiber installation of the American-born, Paris-based artist transforms the Nasher Sculpture Center and galleries with her use of supple and pliable materials. With a career spanning more than six decades, Hicks continues to push perceptions of art beyond traditional associations and uses fiber to create sculptures and objects that give material form to color. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Janet Bishop, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Let's start with the famous story about how David Park allegedly made his break from the then-dominant Abex style in which he had been working by loading up his car with Abex paintings and driving to the dump with them. Is it true? And if it is, why did he do it? It's true. It's not apocryphal. In Sometime in late 1949 or maybe early 1950, Park decided he needed a complete break. And so he stuffed as many of his paintings as he could into the family car and drove to the city dump. His wife, Lydia, was with him, and he didn't really make a big deal about it afterwards, but it was a big deal. I mean, normally, Park would have painted over canvases that he didn't like. He didn't have a lot of money, and it would have made a lot more sense for him as an artist to just scrape something down and start over. But he he needed to do something really radical. And so by abandoning his abstract paintings, he gave himself a totally fresh start. And by the spring of, of 1950, he had completed his first new figurative canvas of the Studio 13 Jazz Band at the San Francisco Art Institute, uh, then California School of Fine Arts and showed it publicly and and never went back. Well, let's 
Let's start with those Abex paintings before going back to the beginning, because they were clearly important to him, even in a kind of anti-way. A few of them have survived. What do they look like, and what do they kind of tell us about where he was and where he would go? He was a pretty good abstract painter. We have four of them in the show, and they vary one to the next. All of them have vestiges of, of the real world in them. But he, he had a great sense of color. There's a lot of kind of gold and, and green and uh, an interesting sense of, of composition. And structurally, they connect a lot to what we saw in his work both earlier and later. There's uh, one piece, Untitled J, from 1948 that he exhibited at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art in 1948, along with Elmer Bischoff and Hassel Smith, which was his most important showing of his abstract canvases. And it almost looks like we're positioned inside of a tent uh, with a music stand, maybe right in the in the middle. It's really just a, you know, it's a it's a geometric abstraction, but one that makes me think of a of a music stand. And you see various things that he's done that that show up in other paintings. For instance, there's this long, skinny stretch of white on the left-hand edge of the painting. And when he started painting figuratively, you know, just a couple of years later, those abstract passages that hug the edge of the edges of the canvas might be like the slice of somebody's head so or or a necktie so you see a lot of his you know his interests interests emerging in these abstractions that carry through through much of what he did later or there's another untitled painting from 1948 that looks like it has an awning at the top and that was something that he loved Um, you see it in his very early prints that he did focused on the Genesis series. Well, there'll be a kind of a, you know, stripe tent. Stripes show up again and again and again. And he loved using that device to kind of separate, you know, different zones of a canvas. Yeah, he was a big, um, I mean, stripes, stripes are throughout the oeuvre. So before we get to Park's decade or so long mature period, let's talk about what he was doing before Abex, before World War II. In the late 1930s, he's married. He's, he's a father of two teaching at a private girls' school in the Boston area. What's he doing then? What's he making then? In the late 1930s, Park was making these very tightly controlled figurative canvases that seemed to come out of social realism when he was a very young artist and had newly arrived in the Bay Area from Boston via Los Angeles. He became immersed in the artist community that included Diego Rivera, Ralph Stackpole. He was working for Ralph Stackpole, the sculptor, on public sculptures that sat, that still sit outside the Stock Exchange building in San Francisco. And so he was influenced by social realism, although I would say that his his pictures are, are don't tend to be particularly socially driven or politically driven so much as as just reflecting his his deep interest in people. So you see people in all kinds of configurations, mothers and children, young young people, you know, gathered in the Boston Common. You see people gathered on a on a fire escape. And one of the things that really impresses me about these paintings from from you know the mid 1930s, late 1930s is how he was really able to present human beings from every conceivable angle. I mean, he had such a gift for 
human form, had such an understanding of, of the body. The pieces from you know the late late 1930s, for instance, where you see you know kind of a, a swirl of energy of you know couples dancing or or people gathered around a table you know toasting each other, they're they're really they're really wonderfully sophisticated paintings, and he had a great color sense, and you really see his kind of love of human form come through. You also see him becoming enamored of Picasso and Matisse thoroughly. I mean, almost too much. We'll get to Bernard later because I think he becomes enamored of Bernard too. You mentioned the that kind of white stripe in on the left hand side of a forty eight or forty nine abstract painting, and 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 how that kind of sense of movement continues in, in in the later work. But in this period in the late thirties, Matisse, Picasso, Picasso, Matisse. What does he take from each? Um, I think that he he learned a lot about color from Matisse, and he was. He made a lot of paintings that are situated inside a room with a view out the window. And I would say the those paintings are have a debt to Matisse, but but still to me are, you know, very much his own. I think his relationship to Picasso was in the very late 1930s was was very, very close. And so, you know, you see him kind of taking on some of the kind of angst of Picasso's uh, figures at the time and this use of you know heavy black outline and and creating compositions that really sort of where each element sort of fits together like a like a piece of a puzzle and then you know he he worked on that for a relatively brief period of time and then moved on one of the really interesting things to me about park in the 1930s and 1940s is that no particular style really sustained his interest one of the things that he said about his abstractions is that they were a reflection of a hardworking guy who was trying to be important. You know, they didn't ever feel completely authentic to him. And, and I, so I think that this whole, this sort of long lead to his mature period of, of, uh, of the 1950s is, is fascinating. He was, you know, he was very adept. He, he was a natural. He could, he could move really fluidly from one style to the next, but it wasn't until the 1950s where, where he really, you know, truly came into his own as a painter. Another way of thinking of those Abex years is that they must have probably allowed him I mean, if he was hewing a little bit too close to Matisse and Picasso, the Abex year, years gave him a break from it and and allowed him to kind of synthesize rather than remake, which I think was, you know, I, th- I think really worked for him. So we know David Park as, as a Bay Area Fig X painter. He and his family move from Massachusetts to the Bay Area, back to the Bay Area in 1941. You know, we, we've told the garbage dump story. What prompts his return to the figure what what is there anything that gets him back there there is a there was a really interesting kind of moment in park's career in the 1940s during the war when he was making very modestly scaled paintings that he called masks or profiles where he really focused on the 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 head the human head and they are very stylized, and and I think the and and those kind of lead into the abstract work. But I think that one of the interesting things to me is that, you know, for anyone who knows anything about David Park, you know, the dump story is comes you know sort of first to mind. One might think that you know that he had 
abandon a long career as an abstract painter for for figurative work. But what's interesting to me is that abstract period was was really very brief, and that the figure had been his interest all along. It was the that interlude with abstraction that gave him the tools to approach subject matter from the world around him, you know, vernacular scenes, interiors, bathers, boaters, with a whole new sense of composition and color and paint application um, that becomes increasingly gestural over the course of the 1950s. Aside from the figure, there's nothing we associate Park with more than we associate him with the loaded brush. Does that come out of the Abex experience, or do you think he gets the loaded brush thing from somewhere else? I think it's very much connected to the Abex experience, although his own abstract paintings don't demonstrate, you know, his full capacity as uh, as a painter in the same way that his late figurative paintings do. Toward the end of the 1950s, when he was using brushes that were two or three inches wide and he was working wet on wet, wet into wet. And you see Park, you know, in full command of his powers as a painter. And I think that very definitely comes from abstract expressionist painting, gestural painting in general, if not his own. You know, it's not what he was doing in the late 1940s, but I mean, he was certainly aware of, you know, the best of New York school painting, for instance. So are the two paintings that that kind of start the shift rehearsal from 4950, which is now at the Oakland Museum, and Kids with Bikes from 1950 in a private collection, are those really the first two? They were, rehearsal was the very first. He would have completed that in early 1950, and he showed it that spring. And the response was really interesting because his peers and the critics had no idea what to make of it. I mean, Frank Lobdell described it as a gag. And in in a letter to Richard Diebenkorn, and then, you know, later kind of elaborated that if not, you know, if it wasn't a joke, then then Park must have must have made it as a kind of remembrance or souvenir of uh, of a subject that he cared very much about, which was, you know, his own band, but that it couldn't possibly have been serious, you know, and then the following year when Kids on Bikes was shown you know, Richard Diebenkorn famously, you know, remarked that, you know, my God, what's happened to David? Um, <laughs> because it was just such a, such a surprise. I mean, and part of, part of what, the reason why we think that, that uh, his trip to the dump was probably early 1950 is that Diebenkorn left to go to Albuquerque, you know, depart for, uh, for graduate school on New Year's Day, 1950. And and he knew nothing of Park's shift, you know, of, of the changes that were going on in Park's studio. And so Nancy Boas, through her extraordinary biography, sort of pieced it together that trip to the dump was probably early 1950. And hence, when, when Diebenkorn finally saw an illustration of, or a reproduction of one of, uh, of Kids on Bikes, you know, he was truly shocked. So rehearsal and kids with bikes, they're, they're, they're two paintings that in, in their subject, musicians in one and people um, out of doors in, in vaguely referred to landscape in, in the other, are subjects that Park would, would really stick with for, for, for the rest of the decade. And the other thing that's in both paintings that he would stick with was this kind of radically acute or extreme sense of perspective. 
Why did those subjects and why did that perspective interest him? I was talking to Park's daughter recently, Helen Park Bigelow, who has wonderful memories and insights into the work. And she said, you know, Park's two great gifts were painting and people. And, you know, I think he was the sort of the, the sort of person as it's been, as he's been described to me, who would come into the room and everything would change because he was so dynamic and engaging and people really gravitated to him. And so, you know, the, the rehearsal is a, a piece that's emblematic of that love that he had for, you know, for his, his fellow artists, for the culture at the California School of Fine Arts. And so it was a subject that, that meant a lot to him. I mean, he was a, a musician. He loved listening to classical music and he played classical music and he played jazz music. He'd be the first to, you know, to have said that he didn't play it all that well. But that, that subject of musicians, I think was interesting for, for lots of different reasons, you know, not only because it was personal to him, but because it's, it's also a really dynamic subject. So you've, you, he was, he uses, you know, the instruments to guide you know, to, to guide our eye through the, through the composition in a really dynamic way. You also mentioned, you know, this, this kind of wild perspective, this really dramatic perspective. And as, as, you know, his friend Richard Diebenkorn would say, you know, he really loved the long reach back. So going very deep into the canvas with small figures and then having other figures very close up in the foreground. Park was very art historically attuned. He was very aware of what artists like Degas would have would have done with his, you know, his pictures of of mu- musicians where you see the you know the scroll of a cello kind of way up at the at the front of the canvas and then the the stage you know and the dancers way off in the distance. So he just he loved he loved kind of exploiting the full sort of potential of deep space in his canvases. That's something that does really change over over the course of the decade where later on the figures tend to be much much closer to the surface much more immediate yeah he slaps he you know by by before long he is slapping faces right up against the picture plane it's almost like he's making details of his previous paintings any idea what motivated that i mean it's really uh, i mean everything becomes just right up against the picture plane by by you know 54 or something in the mid 1950s i feel like he's still painting figures by 57 58 as his former student and studio assistant tom holland describes it he's really constructing figures he's just he's he's putting them together out of his you know out of his mind's eye and they they come they're right up they're right up on the surface they're so immediate they're so powerful you really see him you know wielding a brush with enormous confidence you know the other thing about his figures is is they're men. They're they're overwhelmingly men. There's probably I'm going to get myself in trouble with this, but there's there's almost no certainly American painter of the post-war period who who paints more male bathers, who paints more more of the male figure. Do we have do you have any idea why his preference was for for portraying the male figure? whether it was an overwhelming preference there are quite a few pictures of female bathers as well there's the two great paintings from 1958 both called two bathers that both feature pairs of women and but he he 
was unusual in how frequently he he chose to paint the male nude. There we have the the extraordinary standing male nude in the shower in the exhibition, which is which is among the sort of most kind of raw and frank depictions of of the male nude you know, that I can, I can think of. I've been working with Lee Hallman here in Fort Worth and she just showed me an image of Kaibot's man stepping out of a tub that the, that recently joined the collection of the MFA Boston. And, and that's a really, you know, we wondered whether that was a painting that Park could have known. And then there's the incredible painting, the, the bather with knee up, um, which comes from the Orange County collection, Orange County Museum of Art collection, where you see Park's appreciation for this youthful male figure. The model was a family friend, a young man named Paige Shorer, who posed for Park and also posed for the Bay Area figurative drawing sessions that Park initiated along with Elmer Bischoff and Richard Diebenkorn. We have a special gallery of the exhibition that is devoted to these drawing sessions. And uh, there's a whole section of male nudes, a whole section of female nudes. There are drawings that the artists made of each other, which they would do when, when models either didn't show up or they couldn't afford to pay them. And from what I understand, it was, it was really Park who encouraged um, his fellow artists to, to look at the male, to use male models as well as, as female models. He had an expansive interest in in human form, so it's really incredible to see how beautifully and sensitively and compellingly he depicted both men and women. All of those figurative paintings are French, 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 French. Bather tradition, bather tradition, bather tradition. I I can hardly think of an American painter um, who's who's as French as Park. You mentioned the standing male nude in shower with the with the blue curtain, which also feels very much like a Bernard, especially the shadow across the face of and the shoulder of of, of the nude. Why was Park so Frenchified? <laughs> I don't know whether I would describe him as Frenchified. He was a again very art historically in tuned, and I think he naturally gravitated to to French artists as important historical precedents. I think he knew that he could learn a lot from them. He, I mean, he was, he was interested in Renoir, for instance, for instance, if you think of, you know, the awnings that, uh, or stripes that often appear in Park's paintings and Luncheon of the Boating Party. One of my favorite, uh, very early paintings of Parks is called The Table, and you've got this wonderful domestic interior and upturned perspective that, that certainly connects to to someone like Bonard. So he he loved pouring through art books. He loved going to museums, whether in San Francisco or Boston or occasionally New York. He never traveled to Europe, so all of the paintings that he knew firsthand would have have to would have to have been presented in the U.S. But the in terms of subject matter, you know. Boaters and bathers were the subject of boaters and bathers was one that resonated with him since his you know, very early days as an artist. He spent summers in Peterborough, New Hampshire, and spent a lot of time on lakes. He bathed and boated himself. There, there, the, you mentioned the table. I think that's the table with fruit from 1951, which is really early 
painting after the return to the figure, and it's it's as Bernardian as anything any American does until until Diebenkorn, you know, maybe a decade later. You know, the other painter that we see Park engaging, although very differently from his peers, is uh, Edward Hopper. There's this sense of isolation figures who are isolated often in Park, but he doesn't, he's not nearly as wedded to Hopper's light or space as, say, Diebenkorn would be. Do we know through whom or how the Bay Area guys, because until Joan Brown, really, they all were guys, are finding Hopper? And and do we have any record of why they found Hopper of interest? Stephen Korn found Hopper when he was an undergraduate at Stanford. And I I think of those paintings, you know, like Park's bus from uh, from the early 1950s or the Boston street scene from from 1954 as in some ways reflecting kind of dual interests in in Hopper and also in Matisse. Um, he had just seen Matisse's retrospective, uh, the great show that you know Alfred Barr organized that um, that traveled around the country um, in the early 1950s, and and so there's this in in subject matter these these paintings absolutely evoke evoke Hopper, and in in compos- in composition in the the use of an overall field of color, they seem very much indebted to Matisse. There's a pose that Park uses over and over again in painting after painting, usually of men, and often in the in the bather or bather-ish paintings, and it's a figure standing pretty erect with one arm behind the back, reaching back for the elbow of the other arm. Why, why was that such a stock pose for him? Either he's reaching... Either the the figure's reaching back toward his elbow or toward his forearm and sort of grabbing on to it. I think it's a it's a very you know Park was interested in in angles and sort of optimal angles and what made for for interesting ways of dividing space. You know he also loved to position and a hand on a hip where the bent elbow is protruding right out into into the viewer's space. So one of the things that Park said is that he liked people of potential, people who could do anything but don't. <laughs> and so he, the, toward the end of, of his career, a lot of the figures that you see are just standing around. Some of them are a little bit more active. They're, you know, they're, they're boating or, you know, his, his last great completed painting is of a cellist, you know, which is very dynamic subject. But I think he loved that 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 pose of a figure reaching behind his back and grabbing onto his arm, as one that just expressed, you know, a, this this kind of static but interesting interesting kind of way of holding one's body. I love the way the fingers appear from behind figures' backs as this kind of little little cluster of stripes. You know, Park was great at hands and great at arms for people who were in his studio have said that sometimes he would hold his own arm up in front of him while he was painting so that he could look at the hand and look at the figures and look at those gestures. He, 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 there's lots and lots of paintings where you see upturned hands where, and, and, you know, lots of them may have connected to, to his own body. 
I mentioned the loaded brush earlier. As you worked on the show, what did you learn about Park's relationship with loading up his brush? I mean, by the end of his his oil painting career, we'll get to the gouaches later. By the end of his oil painting career, he's using huge brushes, wet on wet, slather, slather. What did you learn about how about his relationship with the brush and, and paint? He was mostly using commercial paints. He wasn't an artist who was um, who was mixing his own paints. Um, so he kept you know can after can after can close at hand in his studio, and and then the brushes got progressively bigger. Uh, so it's it's fascinating to see how he how he covered these canvases with enormous strokes. Some could be you know two feet long, three feet long, and then he go in with the tip of a brush and often with just a couple of little dabs dot in the features of of a face with enormous potency and confidence and economy. I mean, one of, one of the things that strikes me so much about Park's faces is that when you look at them closely, they they almost dissolve into pure abstraction. They dissolve into pure paint. It's almost hard to imagine that they could cohere as faces, but they do. And, you know, he really had a gift in terms of understanding, you know, what would happen when he, when he made his mark and how, how those, um, how those marks would be, would become legible. Given the great Matisse portrait in San Francisco that I imagine Park would have known, he would have had the best example in 20th century painting of how a single brush stroke was a single facial feature. And he certainly seems to have learned from um, Matisse's example in that regard, although he, he doesn't do it in green. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, Femme Chapeau would, you know, was not in our collection until the early 1990s, so he wouldn't have had the kind of access to it that, but it was, it was that known. people today do, but it was certainly known. He would have seen it in, in Barr's retrospective in, in 1952 and also seen uh, the green line. Um, so he, he certainly had examples of, of artists who used color in ways that didn't correspond to nature as well. And that's that's another huge shift in his treatment of the figure over the course of the 1950s. There's a great section in the catalog uh, written by the great Corey Keller about David Park and Imogen Cunningham. What was their relationship and how did they end up um, making portraits of each other? So in, in 1956, David Park and Imogen Cunningham made portraits of, uh, of each other. Park needed to have a good portrait uh, that he could use in exhibition catalogs and elsewhere as needed. And so Imogen Cunningham you know, came to his studio and painted him in all kinds of interesting poses, some of which he responded well to and others not so much. At one point, I think she had him um, sitting in a tree, which and and from the images of Park in a tree, he's clearly extremely uncomfortable. Um, he was much, <laughs> he's much more comfortable when he's when he's either painting or or shown in front of one of his in front of one of his paintings, and so they you know they basically traded services and and Park made in exchange a a really wonderful portrait of Cunningham where 
he did something very unusual, which is that he scrawled her name along the top edge of the canvas. You know, it says Imaging Cunningham, 1956, which is something that he, I don't think he did in any other painting in his entire body of work. Uh, but it's an absolutely fantastic portrait, immediately recognizable for anyone who knew Cunningham, knew what she looked like, um, where you've got this, you know, this wonderful, keen-eyed woman with her very sassy leopard print scarf on top of her head. And, uh, you know, it's got a wonderful background, lots of um, lots of great, great paint handling. But it's, uh, yeah, I absolutely love the portrait and I'm thrilled that it's in in the show. And the portraits that she made of him are really important because as as Helen Bigelow Park's daughter has shared with us they you know they weren't a photographing family meaning there really aren't lots and lots and lots of pictures um, of Park and so her photographs are an important record as well as being really compelling you know images in their own right in the last year or so of Park's life he devoted his his time to two bodies of work. The first one is um, this extraordinary scroll that was about a foot high and about 30, almost 31 feet long, a felt tip pen kind of drawing, although it really does feel like more of a painting than a drawing. I can't quite explain that. What is it? Why did he do it? Park was largely working from bed in the last year of his life. He um, had suffered from um, back pain for decades, and which became you know, really debilitating in in 1960. So the scroll was a work of art that he made on a roll of shelf paper, and his um, family had supplied him with um, felt tip markers, which were new on the market, and he really loved working with them. Um, in addition to making the scroll, which is kind of wonderful, kind of free-flowing narrative, you know, based on kind of memory and imagination, scenes from both Berkeley and Boston, and 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 really kind of you know, this wonderful, um, wonderful unfolding scene. He also made um, individual, you know, felt-tip marker drawings, and and really loved that medium. Those felt-tip pen the ink from felt tip pen is of course you know extremely fugitive as we've now learned and so all, really all of the the marker drawings that he made including the scroll are pretty different in their color than they than they would have been when park park first made them the gouaches on the other hand are you know are a, are a whole other thing before we get to the gouaches one of the things that's really amazing about the scroll is that it feels like a synthesization of, it feels like a painter looking looking back from the end. There's Fouillard um, and his kind of, it's funny, the, the, the thing is only a foot high, but there's the sense of Fouillard and his screens or, or, you know, his decorative screens. There's the inevitable reference or, or apparent reference to American panorama painting of the 19th century where, where paintings would be unrolled in front of people. I mean, this thing is 31 feet long. Do we have any indication that he thought of it as as a summation um i'm not sure i there is the sign that that shows up at the end of the scroll that says dead end and there's a skull and crossbones and so that is because park would would be diagnosed with cancer in in 1960 
you know, there's been uh, a suggestion that that this was a, a kind of, you know, a summative work that he was aware of the end. I'm not sure. I, I don't think that that's true. He had not yet been diagnosed with cancer at the time that that he made this piece. And yet on the the gouaches, on the other hand, I think are a very deliberate final body of work. Why? Why? Why do you think? Well, by the time he he was making those, he had gotten you know terrible news from his doctor that he had metastatic lung cancer, and and was really just given a few months to live. So when he made the scroll, I think he was you know would have had every confidence that he would recover. But by the time he was working on gouaches, he he didn't really have much hope that he was going to to beat his illness. So he painted them, you know, one at a time. One at a time. He made more than a hundred of them, and in those works, you know, reiterated all of the subjects that had been important to him over the course of his whole career. And and the show demonstrates that everything from a, a guy in a striped shirt to a man rowing to um, an Eve-like figure standing in front of a fruit tree, you know, it's almost like he wanted something final to say about each one. Yes. And they are incredibly vibrant. These gouaches were a really incredible extension of what he had been doing in painting in the last years of his life, and that he was able to bring his incredible sort of touch and and command of his materials, his sense of color and composition and interest in in particular figurative subjects. Um, he was able to bring all that together in in this small format in these these works of art that that just are so potent one to the next. Janet Bishop, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston continues its annual summer series of immersive exhibitions. William Forsyth, Choreographic Objects, transforms the galleries into a series of performance spaces welcoming visitors of all ages. From a monumental environment of shifting pendulums, to a single object held in the hand, Forsyth's work blurs the lines between performance, sculpture, video, and installation, connecting participants to the organizing principles of choreography. Now on view, visit mfah.org Forsyth for more. Brooklyn songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and singer La Rain makes her Los Angeles debut June 22nd in the Getty's annual outdoor concert series off the 405. Enjoy an evening of 90s R&B, Musique concrète and ambient soundscapes amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. Welcome back. My next guest is Princeton University Art Museum curator Carl Cusero. He joins me to discuss Nature's Nation, American Art and Environment, an exhibition he co-curated with Alan C. Braddock. This conversation was taped in November of 2018. The show, which is now at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas, offers an eco-critical take on the American landscape tradition through works by 19th century painters, Native American basket makers, photographers, and more. It's on view through September 9th. Carl Cusero, welcome to the Modern Art Nets podcast. Hi, good to be here. So for those of us who aren't in the Academy, what is eco-criticism and, and how is it different from history, writing or doing history? Uh, eco-criticism, I guess you could say, is, is different in that it's inherently interdisciplinary. It's the study of uh, cultural products 
uh, first literary and and more recently uh, visual culture, with a focus on how nature is represented and how environmental concerns are treated, how the human non-human nexus is engaged in works of art and works of literary art. Might one way of getting of accessing those ideas might be through the work in Nature's Nation. Fairly early on in the show. There's a section called Colonization and Empire, The Order of Things. And there are two works, except for that they're both by Peels, wouldn't necessarily seem to fit in a show together. Charles Wilson Peel's portrait of George Washington at Princeton from, from your university's collection. It was painted in 1783-84. And Raphael Peel's Still Life with Steak from 1816-17. How do they fit together both in an eco-critical construct and within your show? Well, that's a, a great way to, to come at getting at what eco-criticism is. So I would step back and say that uh, if there is an overarching narrative to the show, what it's really doing is showing how in the last, say, 200 years, the way that humans have construed the relationship of themselves to the rest of the world and really understood how the rest of the world is structured has undergone a sort of 180 degree flop from one to the other. In the beginning, and really going back to Aristotle, you had the notion of uh, a chain of being, which was a, a rigid, hierarchical, God-given and therefore perfect and immutable structure of being. And that gets uh, sort of promoted and and uh, changed a little bit through various religious cosmologies through the, the Middle Ages and gets into the age of the Enlightenment with people like Linnaeus who put a sort of scientific veneer on it and become very uh, taxonomic and typological, but are still dealing with hierarchy and structure and the static and immutable nature of it. And the reason that those two paintings you mentioned are in a way juxtaposed in the show are to suggest that that mode of thought, that, that sort of epistemology of, of how things work has implications well beyond nature and into culture such that in the hierarchy of genres, the clear number one is history paintings and sort of paintings of men doing, and it's always men, doing great things. And that's very much embodied in the work of Charles Wilson Peale's George Washington at the Battle of Princeton, where he's theatrically waving his sword and sort of clearing the field of the British soldiers who are trying to take over Nassau Hall on Princeton's campus. So that painting is about 15 times the size of the work of his son, Raphael, whose still life with stake is at the other end of that artistic hierarchy. It's a still life depicting not only non-human but non-living things and therefore occupy the lowest rung in that chain of being. So the idea in putting the two together is to suggest that there is a, a kind of a manifestation of this hierarchical way of thinking well beyond constructs of nature into not only art, but also politics. The Peel is from 1822. This is the beginning of the great American, at least on this continent, the American period of taxonomizing and botany brought in by, by Asa Gray, whose, whose taxonomizing of American flora is still the backbone 
of, of American taxonomy and uh, kind of that kind of approach is also represented in your show by works by illustrators such as Audubon. The show goes from there to to this mashup of portraiture and history painting to a couple of portraits in which we see the portrait subject in the foreground and the great outdoors in the background. Um, a John Smybert from Denver uh, and a great uh, Ralph Earl from the Met. And I think Earl, more than anyone else, any other portraitist in the late 18th century, begins to to, to bring the the outdoors forward. What what might be the eco-critical take on these kinds of indoor, outdoor, outdoor pushing forward into the closer to the picture plane portraits? <laughs> there are, in fact, three. You, you mentioned the last two. And I would just add uh, that there's a one even before the Smybert, which is sort of mid 18th century. There's another painting in this little concatenation of, of objects that is important in this continuum as well. And, and the continuum I'm speaking of is the one wherein across the 18th century in North America, if you look at the backgrounds of portraits, and we can't look at landscape representation apart from the backgrounds of portraits, because it didn't really exist separate from them. There was no market. And as this discussion of portraits revealed, people were actually rather afraid and uh, threatened by this sort of unruly wilderness that people felt needed to be tamed. So if you step back to the the very first of those three, it's a, a painting by Justice Engelhard Kuhn from 1710 of a little girl in what is supposed to be Maryland, but she is set in front of what looks like the gardens of Versailles in the background, a very formalized, elaborate garden with fountains and statuary. And the point there is that there's no way that that was Maryland in 1710. This was the artist's sort of wish fulfillment version or vision of, of what this place might come to look like. And even so, he depicts the girl who is the subject of the portrait rigidly separated from that already domesticated world, but still very separated from it by a, a big stone balustrade. And if you take that as, as the sort of starting point uh, and then move forward to the Smybert you mentioned from the middle of the century, it shows a woman who is occupying a sort of liminal space, which is neither in nor out, uh, which is something you see a fair amount of in the portraiture of this period. She's seated and she seems to be half in an interior room. But if you look to the left, there's a landscape uh, sort of arrayed behind her. And she's actually using an iconographic gesture of a pointed finger to indicate by pointing her finger at the natural world that there is a kind of symbiosis between the two, between the human and the natural. And yet it's still something that is separate. And moreover, the landscape that she's gesturing towards is is pretty overtly generic and moreover doesn't make a lot of sense given that she was from Bermuda and what it shows is a sort of New England pastoral scene. So there is a gesture being made increasingly towards 
the human and the natural coinciding and coexisting more productively. But it's not really, as you suggested, until Earl and painters like him at the end of the century where you begin to see a real imbrication of the two. And the Earl painting that you mentioned shows Esther Boardman, who is the child of one of the founders of the town of New Milford, Connecticut, which in the portrait is seen in the background. And Esther is seated on the ground as opposed to in a chair and sort of separated from nature. She's in nature and she's bound to it by color and and various compositional devices in the painting, such as the ringlets in her hair, which pick up the the trunks of the trees just to her to her right. And so there is this sense from the first through the second through the third portrait in this little subsection of the exhibition that people are moving to a gradual accommodation of the commodification, the possibility of the commodification of the natural world through human agency, which is just what the Boardman family did in in making this town of New Milford out of what had been, from their perspective, this untamed wilderness. There is, as one might expect in a, a broad survey of American painting and landscape painting, a section of classic American 19th century landscape, escape paintings, Cole, Church, and, and, and so on. One of them is, is your own Fitzhenry Lane of a ship in fog in, in Gloucester Harbor. It's a lovely painting. It's slightly unusual for Lane in that there's visible atmosphere, which is a horrible phrase I'll never use again. It's, it's a super painting. What work does it do here for you? Well, that is arguably my favorite painting in the show, I, I think, in part because I was fortunate enough to be able to acquire it for our collection a couple of years ago. It, I think, is a wonderful example of how landscape painting after Bierstadt, after Church, after the great sort of theatrical productions of the Civil War era really played itself out in a sense. And the notion of representing sublime America in a political sense as embodiment of manifest destiny really was no longer so much at issue. The the lane you mentioned is is installed right next to a painting that in many ways couldn't be more different. It's a huge Bierstadt, also from our collection, of Mount Adams. And that is a work that was done uh, almost as a travel poster to induce uh, settlement on what was then the Western frontier. But Mount Adams is already almost on the Pacific coast. So at a certain point, the cultural work of landscapes like that, of of inducing uh, settlement, was no longer really at issue because that was a foregone conclusion. And so an artist like Lane, I think, is interesting in that he is interested, even in the works that are not so atmospheric as, as this one is, in not so much subject pictures, so to speak. In other words, not painting this mountain or that mountain or that grand thing as against the other, but rather with relationships. So you can almost imagine with just about any lane painting, shifting the canvas a little bit left, a little bit right, even up or down, 
And in a sense, it wouldn't matter that much because they're not subject pictures per se. What they're about, I think, ultimately is is connections and the relationships of the things in them of, in the case of our painting, the sun working on the fog of the the boats on the tide of the ebb and flow of the tide of the movement of the few figures across the water in a rowboat uh, in the painting. So it's really about flux and change and mutability. And that, in its way, is ecological. It's sort of a proto-ecological painting, I think. And the role it serves in the show is just to indicate that this is a way forward, I think, for some landscape painters at a time when there was not an obvious route to go once all of those big machine canvases had sort of done their thing and played their part. The conflicts between industrialization and the conversion of forests into agricultural fields is something that concerns writers and artists as early as the late 1830s and 40s, Thoreau and Cole, probably most notably. So a little later on, the landscape conservation idea is born in San Francisco and implemented at Yosemite in 1863, 4 and 5. And by the end of the 19th century, we see artists looking even more explicitly at the using up of American land than Cole had half a century earlier. Sometimes it's in the corners or in the distance of a coal painting. But by Winslow Homer's A Huntsman and Dogs, it's uh, a very different story. Um, what is the story Homer is, is, is telling? And is there a progression of land abuse or overuse coming into American art, or is it pretty sudden? I think the artistic recognition of it comes fairly suddenly, although it's not something that, as you say, is a sudden event. But I think the engagement with it artistically doesn't really happen until it's well underway. You mentioned coal, and I would say that we have a section on coal in the show, uh, three iconic works by him from three different periods of his career. And we actually argue really against the grain with him. There was very compelling presentation of his work recently at the Met and in London, and uh, it hewed to the conventional or traditional, let's say, apprehension of his work and uh, the view that he was a kind of proto-environmentalist. And we actually argue against that in the exhibition on the evidence, we think, of his paintings as against his writings. In his writings, he was an avowed a foe of progress and of Jacksonian development. But if you look at the trajectory of the works that he painted over the course of his brief career from the mid-1820s until just before mid-century, you can see something different at work in his artistic production, such that his early paintings, represented by the snow squall in our show, show a kind of sublime, unpeopled wilderness, which is not conducive to any sort of development. And if you move forward to mid-career in a work like The Great Crawford Notch, also in the show, which we have compared to a great preparatory sketch from our collection, from a sketchbook we have for that same work, 
you can see in comparing the sketch to the finished painting how Cole was working to meliorate the ravages of the axe, as he famously decried it, in taking many of the tree-cut stumps, or, or rather human-cut stumps, that he shows in the sketch, and making them instead storm-blasted trunks in the finished painting, and really downplaying the role of the human in almost as if nature were doing the clearing for us. And he does similar things with the buildings in the painting, which are toned down in size and more hid behind foliage and separated. So I think in a way against his writings, he's beginning to recognize the inevitability of accommodating man and nature, so to speak, and 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 the human incursion into the natural world. And I think he's trying to sort through how that might be viable as an aesthetician, how he might be able to make art about something that he found in many ways abhorrent as his writings show. And the final work in this three-part grouping is one of his last paintings from 1848, which is uh, Home in the Woods. And it shows a kind of fantasy of settlement in which there is a log cabin perched at the edge of a lake and surrounded by uh, unpeopled wilderness. And the notion that sort of Jeffersonian yeomen were going to settle the country by making farms and, and eventually building cities is nowhere shown in this painting. It's rather, as I say, a kind of fantasy of how settlement might happen, but it is one that wasn't really viable. We would have a country of 800 people if if everyone settled in that way. There, there's, a, there's a cow in that painting with absolutely nowhere to graze. It's, it's an oddity. Uh, right. Yeah. So I think he, he struggled to make peace with this onslaught, this unceasing tide of change that as a as an aesthetically minded person, he didn't like. But as an artist, I think he tried to find a way to accommodate. And he also had to sell his paintings and to make paintings that looked like the writing would have been a fairly unappealing prospect and unmarketable. And it's also true that many of his patrons were the very people who were responsible for the railroads and the mines and, and the various sort of degradations of the environment that I think he was trying to find a way to accommodate in his, his work. But then jumping forward to someone like Homer, at the tail end of the century, Huntsman and Dogs is from the 1890s. In that, there's a portrayal of queer environmental despoliation in, in, the, in two ways, really. The, the huntsman is not a sportsman, but rather a market hunter and is depicted with just the skin of the deer that he and the head of the deer that he has killed and not any of the meat. And so the idea is that he was taking for the market just what he wanted. And that was not something that was seen as sportsmanlike. But more to the point is that behind him is this sort of moonscape of deforestation 
which is at once very general in the background of the painting, but really comes to a, a very powerful point in the two highly articulated stumps that are in the foreground of the painting, and which, if you look at the painting, you can see are, are mirrored in the shapes of the hounds that uh, the huntsman is accompanied by. And I think the life of those animals are juxtaposed against the death of the trees in a way that becomes very powerful and was Homer's, I think, indictment of that kind of clear-cutting, which was happening in the Adirondacks, where Homer uh, spent a lot of time as a sportsman and where he was active in efforts to set aside what became the Adirondack preserve, which is several times the size of Yellowstone and was so important. It was written into the constitution of the state of New York when it, when it happened. Skipping ahead a bit, there's a section here called Land Ethics and Aesthetics, which could and, and, and probably someday will be its own exhibition. Are you arguing that in aestheticizing and making beautiful what humans have, have done to the land in works like 1930s, classic 1930s Dorothea Lange's or Noguchi's Tortured Earth, that artists are making the abuse of land and environment visually attractive and thus more palatable? I guess I would say, in a way, on the contrary, I'm not sure that the point of some of those works was to be beautiful as much as it was to be, let's say, compelling. That section of the show is about how the human hand in environmental change by the 20th century becomes impossible to ignore and at a scale infinitely greater than the localized uh, issues that people like Homer or Sanford Gifford or David Gilmore Blythe, all of whom are represented by works in the show, were contending with. Lang and Alexander Hoag, Noguchi were dealing with the Dust Bowl and nuclear war, respectively, which are environmental events that had repercussions well beyond uh, a particular river, estuary, or mountaintop, and in fact were regional in the case of the Dust Bowl and even global in the case of nuclear war, after which it might be said, and as Bill McKibben has argued, there is no more nature because cesium-37 is in every single nook and cranny of the globe uh, following the first atomic blast. There's also a section in the show about kind of the human costs of of what we've done and artists kind of reckoning with ways to to present it. Do you think that the way that artists like like Richard Mizrock or Theaster Gates or or Ed Bertinsky are making visual what we've done to the land and the landscape is in an art historical tradition that stretches back to the early 19th century in America's address of the landscape? Or do you think they're consciously trying to, to, to break that narrative and to, and to show land and landscape in a different kind of more piercing pointed way? I, I think 
perhaps it's a little bit of both among different artists. You, you mentioned Bertinsky. Uh, we have a, a painting, or rather a photograph, in the show of an oil spill, uh, which was actually from the Deepwater Horizon spill about 10 years ago. And it's a beautiful, like many of his photographs, it's a beautiful thing. It's it's seductive and alluring and, and sort of luscious in a way in, in its colors and in its scale as a, as a photograph. It's a huge thing. Uh, and yet what it's showing is just the opposite, of course. And, and so there's a tension in his work for sure between this sort of the sublime nature of environmental degradation, which is felt as well, I think, in the Mizrock photo that's in the show of, of Cancer Alley. I think perhaps with artists like that, there is a supposition that by now people, viewers, may understand more the implications and really the global nature of environmental challenges, that there isn't perhaps a need to be quite so, uh, let's say, overt in the way that changes to the environment are made and that they can be aestheticized in a way that doesn't undercut their meaning because I think it's more widely understood that these changes are afoot and that they're very serious and, and even, you know, globally threatening. Carl Cusero, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.